Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks guys. Talk to you soon. This is the Build Your Network Podcast, episode 387. Welcome to the show. I'm Travis Chappell, and I chat with some of the world's top business influencers, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in order to crack the code of networking. I believe that who you know is more important than what you know, and that your relationships ultimately determine the person that you become. So if you want to learn the new way of connecting, if you want to fill your network with quality people and skyrocket your results, then you're in the right place, because this is the Build Your Network Podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the show. Today is an exciting day because we are bringing on another guest for this series that we're going on right now called The Watch List. These are the up-and-comers, the people that are moving things and doing big things in the world. And uh, these are just the people that I have my eye on uh, for more than one reason. And one of those reasons being that they're actually in my mastermind, Cool People, Cool Places. Um, and uh, I just think that they're up to some really awesome things, so we want to spotlight them here on the show. So today's guest is Mr. Zach Knight. Zach, what's up, man? Welcome to the show. Oh, what's up, Travis? I appreciate you having me. Yeah, of course. So um, lots of things to go into here, but I always start with the story. want to build some context for everybody watching or listening. So let's go all the way back. Talk to me about like elementary school. Zach, what were you up to back then? What were what were like interests, likes, dislikes? Were you good in school? Did you not like school, sports, all that kind of good stuff? Well, I've always hated school. School's been pretty awful. Um, we actually share similar backgrounds. Um, I started in private schools, so I was in a Christian okay. school for elementary school. You grew uh, up in Atlanta? Atlanta, yeah, okay. born and raised in Atlanta, and then went to a Christian school first through fifth grade. Um, left that to be homeschooled, actually, for middle school and high school. Um, oh, really? All through middle school, high school? Middle school and high school, all seven is it seven years, yeah. Nice. And I was at homeschooled. Um, during that time, I was big into baseball. So I grew up playing, um, went to a few showcases here and there. And did, your, did your parents do like a pretty good job of, 
you know, homeschool, but also let's get you socially acclimated to like hanging out with other kids and stuff. Too. So that's kind of how I used baseball. It was okay. like a social league or a rec league. So I was able to socialize that way. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, I actually grew up working. My dad owned his own renovations company. Okay. So I kind of grew up the uh, free child labor yeah. and I would work with him in between classes. Um, and it was interesting the way these days it's a lot more um, commoditized where Homeschooling has a different, like, actual curriculum set. Mm -hmm. We actually got our uh, schoolwork from a Christian college out of Florida. They sent me textbooks, and they would send me all sorts of different things to, like, checklist through. Do you remember the name of the college? I have no clue what it was. I was going to guess Pensacola Christian. Uh, that super sounds familiar, so yeah. it might have been. Yeah. Um, they came up with a ton of curriculum. That's the curriculum that I went through in, in our Christian school was PCC stuff called uh, Abeka. A Becca book. Yes, that was is it. That, what it is? Yeah. that was it. So I went through that and it was so you're familiar with it enough where it's very <laughs> the way my parents took a route on it, it was very self taught. So it was okay. here's your textbook, here's your curriculum, figure it out. Which actually ended up paying out really well come where my business is now and we'll get into that a little bit more of how I, I value that aspect of being homeschooled where mm -hmm. it was all self taught. Did you feel like you missed out on anything by being homeschooled or by doing, like, by teaching yourself? I don't think on the teaching myself part, but being on homeschooled, I, I think that was a huge aspect of missing out on athletics. Okay. I went through several showcases in high school, um, but every time I went to a showcase, they asked about what the recruitment looked like in my area, but I wasn't able to play for a higher caliber high school in the area since I was homeschooled. So I really gotcha. think I missed out on that aspect where I had potential scholarships online for college and then they just didn't have any type of recruitment footage, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Was there anything that you feel that you would do differently now, like, um, you know, as a future parent that you wish would have been a little bit different? And I think everybody's got these and this is not a slight on your parents in the least. It's just like a... Everybody's got it, you know, right. no, there's no such thing as a perfect parent. Every kid, you know, wishes they would have had this or wishes they would have had that. What right. was that thing for you? I think actually attending just so I could be part of a structured baseball program. Mm. I did the yeah. self-taught thing with baseball as well. So uh, for me, I don't think I'd ever homeschool one of my children because yeah. I think the social aspect is a big thing where I had to push myself outside of that comfort zone because my comfort zone was so small where I'm used to only being around family. Mm -hmm. um, so trying to push myself out of that comfort zone leading into adult life, I think was really difficult. So I think attending a public school would have made a, a little bit of a difference in that aspect. Yeah, how do you feel uh, baseball helped prepare you for like life or for business or for what you've done in the past? I think it really set the foundation for teamwork. I think that's a huge part of being able to recognize um, how to work within a team, but also how to lead a team. Yeah. And leadership is one of those things that I've really tried to have an emphasis on in my life and my career. Mm -hmm. And I think that really started in that arena where I started playing, but then I also went back and I coached uh, oh, guys cool. that are about five years younger <clears throat> than me. I was an umpire. I did everything through that league where it kind of put me in a leadership position starting young. Yeah. Do you have any like, you know, fond memories or stories or anything from traveling or from practices or anything like that? I think it was kind of the, the interesting part was the travel ball. Definitely. We, you know, all the guys, you get a bunch of 14, 15, 16 year olds together and um, you all, we all find that one crash room, you know how it goes from the, well, you might not know how it goes in the 16 year old age, but um, definitely some good memories where we would all just goof off and have fun when we were going around and traveling through whatever tournament we were playing in. Yeah. Yeah. 
So if you were self-teaching with school, do you feel that you got behind in any subjects or anything like that um, in high school, or was it... Did you not really have an idea of what you of where you were supposed to be because there was nobody else around you? Well, I don't think I really had an idea. I did actually get a I got a GED and then got um, took SATs, mm -hmm. so I could compare my SAT scores, which were decent. Mm -hmm. um, but it was one of those where like calculus and the crazy maths yeah, yeah. kind of went in the drain, <laughs> sure. which is definitely fed forward now. Where I hate math and I hate finance, anything related to that yeah. has definitely been a stickler in my education. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then did did you go to college after that, or what was the? So I actually. Disappeared for about three years. Um, I turned 18, and there's a little bit of animosity from being a young, dumb teenager towards my parents <laughs> for that route. Um, at 18, I moved out. That day I turned 18, could sign an uh, a lease on an apartment, and I ended up dating a girl, chased her to Columbus, Georgia, which is about two hours south of Atlanta. Okay. Chased her down there and kind of goofed off for a few years okay. and did nothing. Um, but I realized... Did my, nothing as in actually did nothing? No, or no, like, no. Um, actually, I was you just working, like got a job somewhere? I actually worked three jobs. Um, during that time, I was working about 20 <laughs> hours a day. That's, that's the definition of an Atlanta right. kid doing nothing. Yes, yeah. pretty much. Yeah, if a California um, kid was doing nothing, they would actually do that. <laughs> They were just sleeping right. on a friend's couch, like smoking weed all day. But anyway, go ahead. No, I mean, we were self-sustained and I, I worked three jobs. I was walking four miles one way to the first job I would walk back all uphill in the snow um, the walk there was downhill the walk back was the slower uphill walk for yeah. sure um, definitely not in the snow though thankfully um, and yeah I just kind of grinded through for a few years until I turned 21 I knew from an earlier age probably 14 15 I figured I wanted to be a police officer and I had that route so I stayed a very clean lifestyle. I didn't drink until I was like 19. I've still never done a drug in my life. So it was one of those where I stayed in a, that type of route knowing I wanted to position myself to be a police officer at 21. Hmm. Okay. So did you? I did. Okay. 21 and like two days I became a cop um, in my hometown of Smyrna, which is a suburb of Atlanta. And I very quickly uh, kind of dove into that lifestyle and that culture and there are a whole different level of conversation we can have about the policing environment, but I ended up staying there for about right at seven years. Seven years, so from 21 yep. to 28. Yes. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so this is um, uh, somebody used to, uh, somebody that was prominent in my life, an authority figure in my life, used to call that the mistake zone from age like 17 to 27 or 18 to 28 or something like that. Mm -hmm. So you, from that age, moved out, got your own place, moved away from home, living with somebody else, working three jobs, then become a cop, and then you're a cop for that you were the remainder of those, you, right. know, you know, that ten year period, those seven years. W what would you say the difference was between like seventeen year old Zach and twenty seven year old Zach? Man, seventeen year old Zach was <clears throat> two days away from signing a contract to join the military, <clears throat> ended up chasing that girl instead. So you could see where the priorities were. <clears throat> um, twenty seven year old Zach finished had just finished his bachelor's degree and did sign that contract for the military and I joined right after I finished my bachelor's and it was about three or four months after I turned twenty eight. So while you're a cop, <clears throat> you're going back to school? 
Was that yes. online? Was that in person? Yeah, I did distance learning. So I was a night shift officer. So I worked uh, 12 hours, 6P to 6A. And during that time, I went back and got my bachelor's in criminal justice, which is a phenomenal um, <laughs> degree to have for pretty much nothing. Yeah. Um, but I got that degree. It took me a solid six years to do it, but yeah. kind of grinded through and went to classes. Why do it? Like, you already have the job. Why do it? I think I saw the writing on the wall where the movement towards policing, you know, kind of there was a joke when I first started, I started at the end of 2009, and there was a joke about how if you have a GED, you go be a cop. Mm. And I didn't want to be that cop that literally had a GED and that was all it was. So yeah. I wanted to educate further where I had more options. And as a police officer, if you want to go to one of the three letter agencies, my, my dream was DEA. And I wanted to go DEA. You couldn't touch a drug, and you couldn't. You had to have a bachelor's degree. Hmm. So that was really my driving force. Okay. Um, I was actually offered a job at the DEA when I was about 26, and turned it down due to an ex-wife I had that was not supportive of that idea. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah. So you have this pattern of following girls then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and my current wife, uh, yeah, she's a little bit dangerous and in the room, so I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> smart man. Smart man. Learned your lesson. Um, so, so at that point then, like you've done all this work to get to the DEA, you don't do it. Was that before or after you completed your bachelor's? That was actually right about the same time. I got the job offer about the same time I signed my contract with the military. There's about a month in between. Okay. So I just finished my bachelor's. They were The offer was contingent upon finishing that. Um, they came back and told me I had to do like two more steps and good to go. And they were you know admin <clears throat> steps. Um, but we had just, my ex-wife and I had just built a 5,500 square foot home in Atlanta, and we were, I custom designed it. Hmm. I've dabbled in real estate. I've probably flipped five or six houses where uh, I've used some as rentals, but some as flips, and this one was gonna be you know, the forever home. Hmm. And in the divorce, she kept it, so it was so a great build. But it was her forever home. <laughs> it was her forever home, yeah. yeah. <coughs> she should still thank me for that one. Yeah. It's a, it a nice house. <laughs> Good parting gift. Yeah. Yes, it was. Um, so what happens after that? So I signed my contract on uh, for the military. And what what branch? Army. Army. Um, so I'm part of the Georgia National Guard. National Guard. Um, so I the contract for the Army. The contract was contingent upon completing several steps. So I went uh, my two weeks from the police department led directly into basic training. Basic training led into officer school, and then officer school led into infantry school. And that entire time was when I was going through my divorce. I signed my contract, and then two days later, my wife filed papers to divorce me. Mm -hmm. She gave me a little bit of an ultimatum, you know, don't do military, and we'll stay together, or do military, and we're done, and I don't do well with ultimatums. <laughs> um, finally kind of <clears throat> got past that whole following a woman around and wanted to make my own path, and um, that was kind of the, the choice I made. So I went into about 15 months of training to go from basic to infantry school. Yeah. How, how do you feel about like when, when you look back at decisions like that, those are obviously huge life impacting decisions. Um, what do you have like some sort of a formula or some sort of a um, like a guide or anything like that to let you know that you're making the right decision? Or is it just kind of like a gut feeling that you just roll with it and say, hey, no matter what happens, I'm I'm going to be all right in the end. I'm very big on gut feelings, um, trusting your instincts. I think that was a huge thing that kept me alive, both on the streets in Atlanta and in Afghanistan. You kind of, you know, you get the that feeling that you're on the right path or you're on the wrong path more more often. And I think that was kind of the guiding light where 
I, I recognize when I'm in a comfort zone and I know you can't grow in a comfort zone. And that's kind of where I got at the police department. I was in that comfort zone and just, you know, finishing out my degree. I was on SWAT. I was doing, I was a, I'm a gang investigator. I was a narcotics investigator. I did all the fun stuff, if you will. Mm. And I just kind of got stale. Mm. And I wanted to test myself further. And the way I positioned the military contract was that I was going against the best of the best. My class in infantry school out of 200 had 190 West Pointers in it. Oh, wow. And West Point is like the premier, you know, they're the next yeah, journalist. Yeah, man. Yeah. It's the top best yeah. of the best. So to have a Georgia National Guard guy step in and, and compete against that and yeah. held my own, you know, it was really about testing myself, testing physically, mentally, and then also leadership. Uh, the whole goal was to lead a platoon in combat. Hmm. And that was like my number one reason for joining. I wanted to take 18 and 19 year old boys turning them into men and safely drive us through a deployment in a combat zone and care for what you ask for. <laughs> <laughs> so something I find interesting, man, is like the, the way that you were describing your comfort zone didn't sound super comfortable, meaning that like the, the stuff that you were doing <clears throat> seems like it was really exciting and interesting. And it, it's not like a, it's not like sitting in a cubicle and rotting away in a cubicle your whole career. Right. right. Like you're talking about like investigating like you know, all these different, you know, crazy crime situations. It seems like that would be, if you wanted to be a cop since you were 15, it seems like that would be the dream, right? So why do you feel that you were the, that you were looking in that situation where most people that would have similar dreams to you would be like, this is everything for me. But you were like, man, I, I want more. Why, why do you think that, why do you think that is? I'm not really sure. You know, I, I don't know what kind of burns that in me. It's just like, I always feel like there's more, available for everybody and for me the the impact i was making in the community it was the community i grew up in so i knew a lot of people there and i could see the impact or lack thereof that you're actually able to make as a police officer and i realized that i wasn't making the impact i wanted to make hmm. and i thought the next best step would go on you know the international scale with the military to try to make an impact on that level and see who i could touch and who I can impact in that route. Yeah. So did you did you were you at all trying to prove something to, you know, parents or teachers or authority or yourself or anything like that? I think it was really myself. I, I really wanted to test myself where um, I, I've never been the type to ask for permission or to look for affirmations necessarily, hmm. except for myself. I'm by far my toughest critic. So if I felt like I'm not meeting my potential, I always do some drastic and Heather, my wife will, will tell you, I always kind of take a drastic left turn to get out of that comfort zone, to push, to see what more potential is available. Hmm. Is that why we're sitting here right now? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Your, your mastermind is definitely out of the comfort zone yeah. for us. And you know, the first mastermind I was in with you, it was what, three or four months after I started my business when I jumped in that one. Yeah, it was really, really new, yeah. It's super new. And that I mean, was, it was pretty quickly after I started this business yeah. too, honestly. Yeah, yeah so I, I saw the value in what you could bring and that group could bring and you know, jumped out of the comfort zone. Yeah. And then this one came up and Heather and I sat down and talked about it um, last time we were out in Vegas with you. And um, we, we had a good conversation about it and I went back to her and I started talking about it and she's like, you know, I think it would be dumb if we didn't jump into it, if nothing else, just to be able to build our network for what our long-term goals are. And then here we are, one retreat down, it's like, shoot, we've got five or six other ideas that now we're building on that 
you know, the impact that you've made and your network has made on us has just been incredible. Mm -hmm. You found a keeper then, man. She's, she's advising not, you to do that kind of thing. She's not bad. I, <laughs> I did lock her down with the ring, so. Yeah, that's good, that's good. <laughs> okay, so now the business side of things. So you, you brought up, you, you had just started your business. Talk to me about, I assume it's gotta be like a similar following the pattern of what you did your entire life of why you kind of stepped into this business, but can you talk about the motivation behind that? Yeah, I think it really goes back to my why of why I started the business. Um, Simon Sinek's book has been a huge driver in a lot of what I've done mm. to define and have passion behind what I'm doing. Yeah. And my why story goes back to being on the road patrolling and there was a burglary. You know, you get an audible alarm and you get five or ten audible alarms a day where just, you know, the alarm gets activated, you go respond and it's nothing. Mm -hmm. And then about two percent of the time you actually have a burglary that happened. And I show up to this burglary, the back door had been kicked in. Um, my partner gets there and we follow the you know, standard protocol. You have to clear the building, make sure nobody's in there, contact the homeowner, let them know that what's happened and then have them come to the location. Because at the end of the day, policing is very based around response and reporting, not necessarily prevention. Hmm. So we responded and then we had to do the report side of it. And the homeowners came and the young woman that was the, is a husband wife, um, they came back to the house and the unfortunate part is they've just been victimized and they just had this traumatic experience where they eventually, essentially have been violated in their own space. And we essentially have to dig deeper into that as police officers because you have to list what was taken. Hmm. So you, you've seen it in the movies where there are burglaries, you know, the TV's missing off the wall, the laptop's gone off the desk. Sure. Those are obvious. But what we don't know is, was there a stash of cash? Did you have a whole bunch of jewelry? Was there a firearm in the house? Like the more important valuables. And as she's going through notating, yep, yeah, that TV's gone. Yes, this laptop's gone. We get to the bedroom and in the bedroom, we, she had her jewelry box. And in that jewelry box, she had a heirloom ring that her grandmother had given her and her grandmother had just passed the week before. Mm -hmm. And this heirloom ring, she didn't have a picture of it. There's, there's not really a good way to track jewelry like that. And it was just gone. And she lost that super valuable item. And she just broke down, started crying, fell on the floor. Her husband was trying to console her. And as a police officer, you kind of just let it play out. I mean, you can't really step in and interject into that situation. And she asks, she's you know still crying, and she asks, "What can we do to keep from being victimized like this again? You know, what do you recommend to keep us safe?" Mm -hmm. And the unfortunate part is, with the culture toward policing right now, you can't make those recommendations. If I recommend this alarm system is going to work or this lock's going to work, and it mm -hmm. fails, that person can turn around, sue me, sue the police department, sue the city, and it just creates a huge liability mm -hmm. that. The police department really was adamant about you don't do that. Mm. So it bugged me for years. That was probably midway through my career that that would happen. And it just like a nagging thing where you, you start feeling like you're not making the impact you really are there to make because mm. of the liability of it. You know, you stop putting handcuffs on, you start wearing them, yeah. and you can't do your job. And like you said, it's not about prevention. Right. It's about reaction. Right. Yeah. And that's a huge thing that bugged me about it. And probably one of the reasons I got out of it is I really felt like I wasn't making the impact I could. Mm. 
So during that military training, but that 15 months, about halfway through, I was talking to Heather about this new business idea I wanted to start where we do security assessments. We look at vulnerability analysis, threat analysis, and actually make the recommendations that can keep people safe mm -hmm. and then implement them. So, you know, I can tell you, hey, you need a camera in Cam's room and you could Google it and find a thousand you know, but what's actually going to be the best camera that's mm -hmm. most reliable yeah. and you can just be overwhelmed by it. So we crafted this business to do those vulnerability assessments <laughs> and make those recommendations that at a police department you can't. And the beauty of having a business, you know, we have insurance for that now where if something ever were to go wrong, knock on wood, we're still doing good. Yeah. Um, we wouldn't be concerned about it because we want to take that extra step of what's actually going to protect somebody. Yeah, right, right. So this is... <clears throat> this is a year and a half into military training? No. Um, so military training is 15 months. I would say it was about seven or eight months into it. So we oh, okay. So we incorporated during that time while I was still in training. We incorporated, <laughs> built the website, started social and everything. And then January of 2018, we actually did the hard launch and started gotcha. serving customers. Gotcha. Do you remember your first customer? I do. I do indeed. He's actually still a customer to this day. Okay. Um, what, what, did, what, did, what exactly did you do for, for that person and what kind of business and stuff did you have, if, you, if you're allowed to share that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for him, he's the retired IBM executive that was in charge of North and South America. And he retired, bought a very nice house in the city we live in, and then also bought a house up in the North Georgia mountains and bought a house in Costa Rica. Mm. And he called me up, he found me on online. Um, at that point, I still had a local address in Smyrna. Um, he found me through that like map search, called me up, hey, will you do this? And he said, I'm tired of asking my neighbors to check the mail. I'm tired of asking my neighbors to bring in packages and walk in my house. Is that something that your security firm will do? And originally I'm like, no, there's, there's no, I can't make yeah. money off that, right? Yeah. And then I started thinking about it. I'm like, you know what, I'll get back to you tomorrow. Let me think about it. And I started kind of doing a little bit of market, like hurried market research. Is this something that is around? Is anybody else doing it? Kind of find out nobody else was doing it. I spoke to travel agents all across the Southeast. They've never heard of it. I'm thinking if anybody knows, it would be a travel agent as an add-on service for them. And I ended up calling them back and kind of, said yes we'll figure out a way yeah and we ended up building out that service we call it for the residential side we call it asset overwatch where it's kind of aside from the security assessments but we go we bring the mail in we bring packages in we'll make sure if you're gone for two weeks the lawn gets cut during the summer the lights are on timers we do a security sweep of the home and really built out this service that has now included pet sitting hmm. where if you don't want to board your animals it's about the same cost to leave them at the comfort of your own home and then we added on um, escorts to the airport because the crime stats in Atlanta for Uber and Lyft are skyrocketing where you put a week's worth of luggage in an Uber and then they just circle back around mm -hmm. or text their buddy hey they're gone for a week and break-ins were starting to become rampant attached to that wow. so we expanded that and the beauty of what we're doing is we have about a dozen folks that work for us and they're all currently police officers, most of them veterans. And the whole premises behind everything I'm doing with my company is I'm only gonna hire veterans and or law enforcement officers. Hmm. So when you know you hire us, we're bringing a higher caliber of integrity and expertise attached to our services. So when you're gone for a week, it's a cop that's showing up at your house, it's off duty, you just wanted to make a little bit extra money. Hmm. 
Okay, so this one has been a long time coming, and I'm excited to announce the launch of my new company, World Class Media. I've been doing podcast coaching and consulting for individuals and businesses for the last couple of years, and over the last few months, I just haven't been able to keep up with the requests. So in order to serve more people, I've decided to stop taking on coaching clients and start an agency that creates a done-for-you podcasting solution, as well as monthly production and repurposing services. So if you are a business owner, coach, consultant, entrepreneur, real estate investor, whatever it may be, then a podcast should be the most powerful business development tool in your arsenal. Imagine having something that is constantly engaging your ideal client, even when you're sleeping, or that allows you to connect with the top people in your industry to build your network and establish credibility, or that allows you to help listeners that are currently outside of your sphere of influence, or that helps you get book deals or speak on more stages or create content once that we can repurpose and distribute across all the platforms for you. That is the power of a world-class podcast that's done the right way. So if you're interested in starting a show, but you just don't have the time, the resources, or desire to figure out all the tech stuff, the hosting, the equipment, the platforms, the production, then you just focus on what you do best, which is serving your clients and running your business. And then let my team focus on what we do best, which is creating world-class chart-topping podcasts. Let's at least hop on a call and chat about it because I'm fairly picky with the people that I work with. And I only work with people who I genuinely think are going to be able to absolutely crush it with a new show. So head over to travischapel.com slash make my podcast. That's travischapel.com slash make my podcast. And we'll chat real soon. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is, uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is, is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. So then moving into what your business has kind of evolved into now, what's like your main focus, the main thing that you that you help people with? So 
really that kind of got developed during my deployment to Afghanistan. I started my MBA about two months before I deployed. I just put in my last two finals finally for my MBA, so that should be coming through here soon. Nice. And through all that research of you know what makes a business profitable, I, sh I found that the residential side is not the highest profit margins. Yeah. And you know we could do a lot, and we serviced a lot of clients, but unfortunately, it just didn't. It paid the bills. It kept the business running while I was gone. That whole year I was deployed. Heather ran the business strictly off residential. Um, she, I can, I'll circle back around to her. She's a whole different story and amazing with that. Um, but now we've pivoted really hard where we still have the residential <laughs> side, but now we're really focused on commercial. Mm. And we started that when I got back in August of 19, started our commercial branch where we still offer asset overwatch, but it's rebranded into executive overwatch. So we sell mm -hmm. it to organizations as a benefit to their top performers. Mm -hmm. And if they send them to travel a whole bunch, we'll do the same thing. You know, we'll take them to the airport, make sure they're home, their family's safe while they're gone. And then we've started doing the security audits for commercial buildings. And like I said, the profit margin is much more substantial when you're doing a large organization <laughs> compared sure. to somebody's home. Yeah, and they tend to have a lot fewer complaints as well. Tell me about the the content side of what you got going on. I know that you guys are launching a podcast soon and putting out some other things like that just to kind of help business owners, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm, I do live videos a couple times a week um, <laughs> that focuses on, I do a What If Wednesday that talks about a scenario of some sort. What if this were to happen to you? I come back with my recommendation for solution over the weekend, usually it's Solution Sunday. And then we, after this retreat, um, it, you and your producer hit me upside the head and said, you know, you need to do a podcast. Go ahead and pull those two, um, those two episodes on to continue those two episodes and then just put an interview in as well. And my biggest issue of not starting a podcast for the longest time was I don't know what theme I wanted to go with. Mm -hmm. And then talking through it with the mastermind, they're like, you know what, you have leadership, you have security, blend the two and see how you can help implement that into a podcast and the conversation. Mm -hmm. So what came of it was tactical leadership, building better businesses. And that podcast should be launching in March. And it really talks about how leaders in corporations take their specialty, whether it be sales or marketing or for me, security, and how they build a better business through that. Hmm. So it's really talking about the culture where any piece I discuss is talking about safe work environments and secure environments for employees to work stress-free. And then we've had a couple interviews with folks that talk about how they use sales to drive the organization and kind of tie in their leadership methodology, whether it be servant leadership or yeah. brass tax leadership, you know, and drive that into the conversation and just kind of get some better tips and tricks on how to be a good leader. So you've mentioned leadership quite a few times during our chat so far. So um, obviously something that means a lot to you and on your time in, in, the, in the police force and in the military. Um, you've, you know, I'm sure, been able to take away a lot of different principles and uh, ideas behind that. So, um, can you give us like you know three to five maybe principles or, or driving forces, things that you've learned in leadership context, whether it be through reading and an application or just straight up through you know getting in the dirt and, and and moving things around? Like what what are, what are some of the top things that we need to know about about leadership in general? Well, I think the big thing is you have to number one be an active listener. You know, you, you can't lead individuals that don't want to hear your message. And in order for you to be able to speak 
in their receptive language, yeah. you have to know how they're communicating. And listening to, during the deployment, um, for example, I took this group of 35 guys and we had two months to train up. I didn't get them until that two month part point started. Hmm. So in two months I had to train this whole group. On top of not training them, I had to get them to trust me in my decision making and my leadership. And month, the beginning of month three, we went into combat and we wow. were literally running operations every four days for eight months. So to test leadership, you know, what better situation than to be in a combat zone, say two words and everybody stops and moves or does something of whatever I, I projected out to them. But in order to build that trust, I had to listen to what they were saying, listen to what they wanted to hear and then project it in a way that was tactical and strategic on the battlefield. Hmm. Uh, so I think active listening is a huge part. Um, and something else that I love, um, we just talked about Jocko Willink and uh, Leif Babin. They wrote the book Extreme Ownership and also wrote Dichotomy of Leadership. Mm -hmm. And I took uh, huge lessons out of that where you have to take ownership. At the end of the day, if one of my soldiers messes something up where I'm not even around, it's still my fault because I didn't provide the training. I didn't provide the experiences he needed to perform at his best. Mm -hmm. So you can't pass the buck down. You know, as a CEO or an executive of an organization, it's your responsibility to make sure everything goes right. And if anything goes wrong, it's still your responsibility. So I think taking that ownership is a huge piece of the puzzle. Yeah, um, I like then, uh, I like a couple things too. Uh, man, I forget who said this. Um, it might have been Simon Sinek. Uh, maybe I'm just thinking him because you mentioned him earlier. But uh, they basically said every time something goes really well, you know, give all of the credit to everybody else. And every time something goes really poorly, take all the responsibility on yourself. And that's been something that, you know, at, at first it was, our, our ego gets in the way a lot oh, of, of something like that, where you don't, when, when you know it wasn't your fault technically, it's a lot of times really difficult to be like, oh, that's my fault. And then everybody looks at you like it's your fault. And you know in the back of your mind that like one of your soldiers or one of the people following you, like they didn't do what their responsibility was, even though you might have already told them to do it. And uh, But there's a freedom that I've found that comes with just owning those things and taking that extreme form of responsibility uh, for everything that happens. Because if you don't, then you can always leave it up to how the world wants to make it happen or how, what, like, you know, it's the difference between life happening to you or life happening for you. And I think a lot of people, you know, check the life happens to me box. Oh, absolutely. And uh, they don't want to take the responsibility because they don't want people to think they're incompetent or it's their fault. But what's interesting in that is that the people who are the good leaders and the people who have the ability to give you more opportunity those people are often the people that are also taking extreme ownership and taking radical responsibility over things that happen. And they'll probably recognize that in you and then give you more opportunity rather than you coming up with some form of an excuse or a reason that, you know, X, Y, Z happened. And then they can look at that and be like, oh, well, you're clearly not ready for this next opportunity, this next role. Um, so it's almost like, you know, Jocko Willing says it's a, a big dichotomy that you it have is. to kind of learn the balance between. But. Completely agree. And it's something I learned the hard way during my policing days. You know, a lot of military go into police and they've already learned those lessons. And as a young 21 year old, headstrong, egotistical kid that has <laughs> a lot of power all of a sudden, you know, I could do no wrong. Mm. So I definitely was never, or I definitely was not always 
with leadership and the forefront and how to lead from a non-leadership position, which I think is a huge piece of, the, of being a leader. Mm-hmm. You don't always have to be in that position to actually lead the group or lead what's happening. And I learned those lessons very hard of, you know, I'm not going to do what you say because you told me to do it. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, there's a communication there that we have to figure out with subordinates and with those that are above us that, you know, to be that leader, sometimes you just have to, you know, take the lashing and then I think an important part of that, which they touched on with dichotomy of leadership, was accountability. Mm-hmm. You don't just take the lashing and let that soldier just skirt by. Mm-hmm. You still have to keep them accountable for what happened, yeah. whether that be through retraining or <clears throat> training for the whole organization. I think accountability is a huge aspect of that as well. Mm-hmm. Could, do you have any examples of that or how that would be implemented? For accountability? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, absolutely. That you're allowed to share? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they're a little <laughs> bit funny, but I mean, they happen in military all the time. Um, we've had, on, on the FOB we were in in Afghanistan, uh, it was my platoon and a Green Beret team. <laughs> so there were 10 of them, 35 of us, and that was our whole operation. <clears throat> so you had Green Beret and then like a bunch of fresh. Soldiers, basically, most of them never deployed. Yeah, Yeah. Um, a lot of them fresh out of high school, never been to college, and it's interesting to see that dynamic. You see (laughs) between green, I mean, that's a huge contrast. Huge huge contrast, and (laughs) on top of that, we were actually the first National Guard unit to deploy to a combat zone in like the last fifteen years, and it was due to performance leading up to um, that deployment that actually won us the slot to go to Afghanistan. One more or less. (laughs) <laughs> it's a great prize. Right, great prize. Um, but watching that dynamic, you know, my, my kids, I call them my kids. I was essentially the platoon mom, so I call them my kids. And, you know, they try to act a certain way for the Green Berets and have that level of professionalism of a soldier sure. that you love. But then at the end of the day, you're still an 18-, 19-year-old kid living in Afghanistan with a bunch of dudes you just met, mm-hmm. essentially. And so there were a couple uh, screw-ups here and there. And um, we have... Uh, cat cards or common access cards that are your ID and you have to you need that to get into the log into the laptops and so on and so forth and one of these examples about accountability um, one of my kids lost his in Afghanistan on a fob that was two acres big you know mm-hmm. it was a very small location and somehow this kid lost it and it was the third time he had lost it since we had him third time third time so I have to report that up the chain because it's a sensitive item. So we have to maintain custody of it. I had to report it up the chain, and I took the lashing from my boss. Like, I don't know what happened. You know, I have I have to correct it, but at the end of the day, it's my fault because I haven't taught him this, this, and this. So I took that ownership. But when we turn back around and his, we call it corrective action, but his accountability piece was we made him. Um, we had building materials. And we made him cut out a large piece of uh, plywood, draw the CAC on the, the card onto. So he had to draw his face, he had to draw his information on this giant piece of plywood. And he had to carry it around the base for a week <laughs> as a reminder of why he never needs to leave it. Yeah. And it was just, I mean, there, there are several factors that go into that. And I'm by no means saying you can get away with that in the corporate world. <laughs> um, but in the military, you know, there's, there's again, egos attached to it. So yeah. it's a little bit of humility lesson. But it's also a, a lesson on importance of this is a really important 
important item you don't need to lose. Right. So it's a little bit silly in the in, in the military world. So don't do that in the corporate world. But um, <laughs> you know, I think you can take lessons like that. You know, take the lashing, but find that level of accountability for that individual so it doesn't happen yeah. more than that. And thankfully, he still has his new card, so it Good worked that you. time. <laughs> so at, at what point do you stop giving chances? Right, like. If he loses the card again, and, and this goes for obviously any situation, this translates directly to a corporate world in terms Absolutely. of like keeping an employee or letting go of an employee. At what point do you as a leader say, look, man, we've tried, we've given you a lot of chances at this point. It's, you know, we, we can't allow this anymore. Right. And I think in the military world, you kind of stuck with what you got. Sure. Yeah, um, translating that to the corporate world, I think it depends on the effort of the individual, you know, you could have somebody that means really well, but just isn't catching on. But if they're showing that effort, I feel like you keep pushing, you keep training, if there's that desire there. Hmm. It's the guy that I had several in my platoon that just kind of says, F it, I don't really care, I'm not gonna improve. I don't, and, and that lack of care is where I draw the line. And those people in Afghanistan ended up sitting in the guard towers and just hanging out there because I was like the less glamorous um, in the corporate world, I think that's where you kind of cut it and let them go because if they don't care to improve and be a part of the organization, they're going to be nothing but a cancer for you. Yeah, how do you how, do you know how you can tell the difference between somebody who's just kind of like faking like they care so that they can keep getting their paycheck and somebody who actually doesn't care? I think it's really on the leadership perspective of you have to have that relationship with everybody and. I don't think in a large organization that's possible for the CEO to have a relationship with all thousand employees, but I think that's where you have to build a culture with your subordinate leaders to have that relationship with their subordinates and have that trust that they'll know when that point is. And you know, you can fake things for a while, but at the end of the day, it's gonna your true color is gonna come out. They always do. Yeah. So if you have a good enough relationship and you're involved enough in what's going on, you're going to see that and be able to make that decision at that point. As a leader, I think one of the biggest things that you can do is always be casting a vision. How do you get other people that maybe you are, quote unquote, in charge of to buy into that vision? That's a great question. Um, I think for me, it includes input. Um, for my position, I was a year and a half in the military, the lowest level of the officer ranks when I first deployed. And I, I was in charge of one guy, my right hand, my <laughs> platoon sergeant. He was 17 years in and already deployed three times. Wow. The three below him, um, they were all seven or eight years of experience in the military. None of them had deployed to a combat zone, but they still had years of military experience that I didn't possess. So a big tie-in of that is creating that team environment where at the end of the day, my responsibility is across that platoon, good or bad. At the end of the day, my word is what happens because in the military, you can just say, do it because I said right, so. Right. But that doesn't buy in loyalty from anybody. Sure. So my big method for building that cohesiveness in two months was getting their input so they have that buy-in. Hmm. You know, if you can devise a plan as a leader <laughs> with your subordinate leaders, they're going to have that buy-in because if it doesn't work, they're the ones that came up with it. So yeah. there's that level of responsibility and accountability they have toward that project or that mission as well. Yeah. At what point do you, at what point do you cut it off and say like, I respect your opinion. I appreciate what you have to say, 
I think that this is this other route is going to be a better route. And so as the leader, this is the route that we're going to take. What, like, how do you know, you know what I mean? Cause you, you obviously, you want to give, you want to give other people the ability to input, but at the same time, you can't just let them run the show. Right. Right. You still have to be that position of leadership ultimately. Cause obviously if two people have opposing views, you either have to pick one of something like you got to say no to somebody, say yes to right. somebody or say no to both and do your own thing. Is there a, a measurement or something that you go by where you're like, yeah, you know what, I I think, um, you know, I respect your opinion, but this is what we're going to do. You know, if there's a measurement, I'd be a much richer man um, <laughs> if I could come up with a tool to calculate that. Um, you know, I think it really boils down to your vision, your core values, and the overarching mission that either is set for you by the organization or that you've set for the organization. Mm. And picking what aligns best for that furtherance. So it's really tough to say for what you're doing, you know, I'm not in your position, so I couldn't necessarily dictate what the best choice for you would be, but you know where you want to go in your organization. And I think you have to weigh all the options, but if you're not getting that feedback from them, you could be very um, tunnel vision towards your mission. And I think tunnel vision will kill every organization. So having that feedback from the subordinates, that might have a really good idea and then taking some ideas and then kind of piecing together an overall puzzle of what the best route would be. Listen, man, there's a bunch of different routes that we could keep going down. Um, but as kind of to wrap this thing up, um, first off, I got to ask you this question because it's the question, it's a staple question, man. It's the, I ask everybody um, who you know or what you know, which one do you think is more important than mine? You know, I don't know if you remember, um, you and I actually had an argument about this right when we first started talking um, there in that first mastermind where I was so adamant about what you know, Hmm. and you were never going to change my opinion, and (laughs) I was never going to believe that you're right about who you know being more important, and it's funny, I stack, when I started my business, I stacked my credentials, I stacked my background, which for what I'm doing is right in line. Mm-hmm. I mean, my background's perfect for the security realm. Sure. And after uh, you hit me upside the head a few times and showing how you've built an organization, and I've seen you grow from episode one to now and see how you built your network and the impact you've made through who you know has been a total pivot from everything that I originally thought because as I've made every deal I've made in my business that has brought me any type of success has come from meeting somebody in some sort of environment, them introducing me to their friend who introduced me to their friend and it just ends up being a circle of knowing people. <laughs> so right. long way to answer, you've, you've uh, changed my opinion on Finally that over the last couple of years. You, yeah. Finally convinced me and uh, the, the who you know is where it's at. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting um, that you say it like that because what you said at the beginning, that's the logic, right? Is like, I'm extremely qualified for this, let me list all of my credentials, you know, like just a big punch in the face of like all of these additional letters after my name, right? Yeah. But at the end of the day, if you don't shake somebody's hand, you can't do business with them, right. you know, um, especially when you're first trying to get off the ground and, right. and get traction. Obviously. Absolutely. Obviously, if you have an unlimited budget, then having a bunch of qualifications, you know, you just send a bunch of ad traffic to your right. stuff and then people <laughs> see all the qualifications. They go, right. I trust this guy, right? But at the beginning, when you're just like kicking off and like trying to bootstrap something like, you know, the the main way that you're going to be able to get that is 
more hands you shake, the more money you make, you know, and uh, comes down to those those relationships, which provide the opportunities to be able to grow and keep keep going forward. So, and I wish I had less listened to you from the get go. And it was actually that first mastermind I was in that uh, with you that kind of changed that opinion because yeah. of the introductions I made from that and the relationships we built from that. Um, and I'll never stop raving about your mission with BOIN and everything you're doing because it's truly opened my eyes coming from the government where it's not about relationships. It's about mm. your background and your position. Yeah. And it just happens for you, right? And now it's, man, I've got to hustle to meet the next guy yeah. to get a better deal. And um, I think that's been hugely incremental where you, if you can provide value both ways, you just keep getting that introduction. I appreciate that, bro. Thank you for, for being honest about that. So last thing here, where, where, where can people find you? Where can people connect with you, um, reach out to you, things like that? So everything right now is tied through my company, um, nightprotectionllc.com. Um, then you can find me all across social media at <coughs> nightprollc. At nightprollc, and that's night as in your last name, night, last K-N-I-G-H-T. Like night in shining armor. Absolutely. Okay, cool, cool. So Knight Pro LLC, go follow Zach, see what he's up to. Um, this guy is like we was talking, like we were just talking about, um, is a master in leadership. And uh, if you run a business and you need security for that business, or you want to learn about prevention of uh, potential future mishaps, and uh, also save money on insurance costs, um, all that good stuff, then um, then reach out to Zach, Knight Pro LLC. Can you give everybody your email address as well? Yeah, it's kind of lengthy. Um, it's my personal email attached to the company is Zach.Knight at Knight Pro LLC. Okay. And it's Zach, Z-A-C-K dot K-N-I-G-H-T at Knight Pro, Knight Protection LLC.com. Cool. So Zach with a K dot Knight with a K yep. at Knight Pro LLC. That's it. Perfect. Awesome. Well, Zach, thanks so much for coming to the show today, brother. Um, you know, I appreciate you. I appreciate uh, Heather and I appreciate all the support that you guys have given me, and especially just from the very beginning when nobody knew that this was even a thing that, that existed and uh, you guys jumped on board and, and have been following and supporting ever since then. So I, I really appreciate you guys and uh, thank you for your service as well, bro. Oh, I really appreciate it, man. Yep. Yep. Thank you, bro. Yep. Well, that's it for today's show. If you want more advanced networking strategies as well as an instant network upgrade, then consider partnering with my BYN Inner Circle Mastermind. There are already dozens of high quality entrepreneurs in the group. There's dozens of video lessons on networking. There's monthly calls, there's accountability crews and more, all for the low investment of just 99 bucks a month. So head over to byninnercircle.com to jump in. That's byninnercircle.com. Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. See you next time. Remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.